Hello everybody, this is Brian Janikowski, uh, Friday, October the 13th. I'm Christian Thwaites. I'm Emily Taken-Vertz, and let's get started with Market Chat. Welcome back, Christian. Thank you. Yeah, busy couple of weeks. Boy, did we have a uh, strong rally in the last uh, couple of weeks of the of the quarter. We did indeed, and actually, let's start there then. Uh, you know, we did see this incredible run-up in the market. Uh, we've asked this question in the past, but at this point, do you see the market as being expensive, domestic equities? It's difficult not to conclude that the market is expensive. Um, recent numbers suggest that we're in the 95th percentile or higher of common market valuation metrics like price to book, uh, prospective earnings, uh, price to cash flow. So uh, this, this has definitely brought us up to a level which uh, we haven't seen for a while. Um, the only thing which makes the earnings sort of less giddy and, and worrying than they, were, uh, they were in the past is that interest rates continue to be low. So whenever you use a discount factor model, you're using a very low risk-free rate of return, which is going to make things like uh, stock market dividends look attractive relative to bonds and the discount rates being used to calculate the future value of earnings uh, very low and therefore very attractive. But definitely on the kind of historic, more traditional methods, we're at the high end of the of the valuation ranges. So with this low interest rate, does that then have the ability to obfuscate uh, risks in the market? Yes. <laughs> and I think this is what central bankers are beginning to worry about, you know, the big three central banks that we worry about obviously the Fed out in front, but then the ECB and the Bank of Japan. Uh, both the Fed and the ECB have talked a little bit about asset price inflation, although it's it's tended to focus their comments on commercial real estate, which is one reason why we dialed back our REITs exposure. Um, and they haven't really pointed to stocks uh, or housing uh, or, or a specific asset class, they'll probably try to stay away from that. But yeah, it, it does definitely uh, raise some concerns about uh, valuations. And, and this recent run-up um, you know, does make me a little bit nervous about the valuations that, that we're seeing right now. So what do the earnings that we're going to see probably in the next couple of weeks, um, what does that, how does that relate to, to this uh, expensive market? Well, this is actually where, uh, on, on the plus side of, of this debate, we're, we're, in, we're in good shape over the last couple of weeks on two important fronts. One is that uh, the prospect of a tax cut, uh, obviously we don't know quite what it's going to look like. We've got a house version out there which... Uh, reduces uh, tax revenue by about $2.5 trillion over the next 10 years. We've got a Senate one, which might be one5 and then we've got the White House one claiming it'll be about $1 trillion. But whatever comes out, and obviously we don't know yet what the, what the specifics are, it does seem as if there'll be some tax cut and or reform. So that makes perfect sense for the stock market to rally on that whether it's based on corporate taxes or personal income taxes or more likely a mixture of both. So that's that's good news and hard news and unlikely to be a, a major disappointment. And the other one is earnings. And we're coming into the earnings season, actually we're in it now. We had a couple of the major banks report 
uh, yesterday, Thursday, uh, JP Morgan, for example, and the earnings are coming in at a, at a, at a fairly good rate. Um, they're up about 7-8% year over year, which is less than they were in the first quarter and the, sec- and the second quarter, but those were very high numbers because the energy sector was still catching up on itself, and the energy sector is 15% of the S&P. So uh, earnings are, are there, uh, which is good. Those are tangible, those are real. One could argue that the companies might alter their books to flatter them a little bit, but they tend not to be able to do that for multiple quarters. So eventually, uh, you know, we're seeing some pretty good tangible numbers coming through. So those two items alone, the tax, the tax, uh, more than speculation at this point, you know, likelihood that there'll be a, uh, a, an improvement in the tax situation, tax cuts, and the earnings numbers, I think, do underpin the, uh, the, 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 the growth that we've seen in stocks. And, um, and so somewhat mitigates the valuation concerns that we just talked about. And just one quick thing, we've seen this huge rally in smaller company stocks, which, um, which uh, we've talked about here before. And the simple reason is that smaller company stocks, as we've discussed, are more domestic focused. They don't have a lot of options to shield their tax liabilities with overseas uh, tax domains and pushing them through Ireland or Luxembourg or some other places, which uh, the Googles and Amazons and Apples have done, uh, which means that those large cap company stocks uh, have low tax rates and brackets and, and smaller company com- ones have a much higher tax rate, about 32% on average versus about 19 for the large cap. So a tax cut for them is very significant, which is why I think we've just seen this big, big run up in the small company sector just over the last couple of weeks. So if we feel like we're going to get the support from earnings, what if we don't get the tax cuts? And what if we don't get them this year? <laughs> I, th- I think uh, if we don't get them this year, I was, I was in a survey recently where we, we were asked what they thought the likelihood of it was, and the consensus was that it would be about 20% likelihood that we get something in 2017, but a 60% likelihood in 2018. And that'll be fine. If it's postponed, the market won't get overly disappointed by it. You know, it takes a couple of quarters of earnings for them to come through to their full benefit anyway, so a six-month delay uh, you know, from now wouldn't be, wouldn't be onerous. If for some reason the whole thing implodes and nothing comes out, um, you know, a la healthcare, then I think um, we, we, we should have a correction unless, you know, I come back to whether the earnings are, are really going to be strong. It's difficult to see that. So, yeah, I, I, I think there's a, uh, a sort of a 10% premium in the market based on the tax cuts. I mean, that's a bit of a rough number. But if for some reason we, we, had, we had a strong message that it isn't going to happen, there is no consensus, and nothing got changed, um, then, then I think some air would come out of the market pretty quickly. So let's turn from the markets to the economy. We had the FOMC minutes come out, and uh, they were quite interesting because we've alluded to this before, but they did demonstrate this... Um, uh, this debate, so to speak, uh, within the Fed of the issue and the factors and the forces affecting inflation. On the one hand, we, we have some saying that uh, this low inflation is uh, due to transitionary forces um, that are impermanent. Um, and on the other hand, some people are potentially floating the possibility that this is kind of a new normal um, in terms of, of low inflation. So can you 
Can you talk to us a little bit about that debate and why it is an why why it's an important question that the Fed is trying to answer? Yes, um, you're right. It, it was a large part of the uh, Fed minutes this time around, and this is actually a debate which is going on uh, certainly within the Fed, and it's also happening in Europe to some extent. It's a, it's, it's somewhat of a of a, a developed market phenomenon, and the issue is what is happening to inflation and there are some people like Larry Summers you know the ex-treasury secretary very respected economist saying we don't have a good handle on how modern economies are dealing with and reacting to and anticipating inflation and the old Phillips curve which we've discussed here before which basically says the lower unemployment goes the likelihood is that there's a squeeze for labor therefore wages go up therefore prices go up has completely unwound if you look at a the Phillips curve from the 1960s. It's a nice sloping sort of convex curve. And if you take it from the 2000s, it's all over the place. It's like a sort of Rorsch test. It doesn't doesn't have any pattern to it all. So this traditional breakdown of, of this traditional relationship between unemployment uh, and inflation has broken down. And obviously a, lot, a, a large part of the Fed, including some very prominent members, the Kansas City Fed person, for example, believes in this, uh, are, you know, were, were taught and brought up on that model and they're not prepared to let it go. And others are thinking more, uh, trying to think more creatively about what else is holding inflation down and, it, and is it permanent or is it transitory factors. And so, you know, we're sort of more, you know, we're here more in the camp of people like, you know, Ballard of the St. Louis Fed or Neil Kashkari of the Minneapolis Fed, uh, who are saying, you know, we, we're having a problem getting inflation going in this country. And uh, I think Janet Yellen is sort of sitting on the fence. So, yeah, it was full of extraordinary things like transitory and um, I think, uh, yeah, so they, they actually quoted it as saying the, this year was a result of idiosyncratic or one-time factors. I mean, it, that's strong language for the Fed minutes, which are normally as dry as, you know, dry as paint. But, um, uh, yeah, they, they, this is a very important debate because if inflation is sort of, you know, permanently uh, low, then the trajectory for monetary policy becomes much more difficult to predict. And what are some of the consequences of long-term low inflation? I I think um, we we know some of the answer to that because it's happened in Japan. So Japan has had, you know, almost since the uh, since the um, bursting of the property boom in the early 90s, you know, close to 0% uh, inflation and outright deflation. So it throws, so the consequences are that living standards just don't go up. So uh, wages stay stagnant, prices stay stagnant, you know, housing and development and things like that stay stagnant. So um, it, it, it can, it, it's, it's a difficult one because it, it makes, dif- it makes growth difficult to to come by, and it makes pricing for businesses very difficult as well. So, we we're the good thing is the U.S. has a slightly growing population and workforce, less than it was, but at least it's positive. Um, so you'd think that there'd be some more underlying demand for for goods and products. Um, but yes, this is uh, the consequences of long-term, you know, permanently low inflation. Um, uh, still haven't been worked out, but it's it, it, one of it, it is sort of still an experiment we're we're living through, and uh, and it makes it runs from uncertainty as to whether the rates should really uh, increase much further from where they are today. Now, and this Interest is, rates, I meant by that, not inflation rates. Right. 
And this divergence from the, the Phillips curve that we've seen, does this demonstrate or point to any kind of fundamental change in our economy? Well, quite possibly. I mean, people have pointed to, you know, the aging of the economy. So all the baby boomers are rolling off into retirement. And uh, and so um, that relationship between uh, unemployment and wages were broken down. Other people have talked about, you know, the gig or the part-time economy, which, uh, you know, essentially people uh, lending out their services for very, very short-term, you know, hourly contracts. That, that breaks it down. Uh, the decline of unions, although that's been going on for about 30 years, you know, certainly um, doesn't help that. Um, and just the change of, changing nature of some of the uh, jobs where there are you know, more services and you know, perhaps less skilled than they used to be. So there's a lot of uh, things going on. And in fact, a lot of, you know, a lot of major economists have asked for a really thorough look at what's going on in the economy, because otherwise we're, you know, we are looking at you know, pretty, pretty low inflation. Uh, which sounds like it's great. You'd preserve all your pricing power, but but um, and purchasing power, but um, it can also be symptomatic of a of, of a weak economy, and we shouldn't be seeing that in the United States. I'm going to turn to Europe now because we have seen a lot of action, especially a lot of volatility in Spain with the independence movement. Um, the volatility hasn't seemed to spread um, throughout Europe. Um, in terms of the Eurozone uh, from Spain. Why do you think this is? And why is that important? Um, I, I think the Catalan one has been festering for a long time. Um, you know, those was long, you know, going back to the 1970s, there was a very, the ETA was the Basque um, independence group that was, you know, throwing bombs around like the IRA at that time. So this has been going on for a long time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a different, it's, it's 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 a different part of Spain, and they've always had this sort of independence flair. So, I I think it was surprising to me that it got as far as it did, uh, and now they've had the vote. Um, but I, Spain's constitution simply doesn't allow a breakaway uh, province like that. And I think what they're going to enter into now is a period of negotiation as to what what it possibly means. The interesting thing is that uh, the EU has made it very, very clear, and they made it clear when Scotland sort of opened up the doors to having uh, not being part of the Brexit negotiations, I staying with the EU, and they basically got the door slammed, you know, very, very firmly in their face. They do not want, the EU does not want breakaway uh, countries. So, you know, Italy's got independence movements around Venice and so on, Belgium has, um, you know that there are others that I can't think of off the top of my head, but you know there are there are a lot of these around, and the EU wants nothing to do with it. And I think uh, this recent round has suggested that while these might uh, pop up from now, it's they're unlikely to get a lot of a lot of traction, and therefore not cause the disruption which people were concerned about. So I think that's the rather sort of circular reason why we're you know fairly phlegmatic about this Catalan uh, independence movement, and certainly the markets have um, have. Taken them, taken it in their stride. That's that's great, Christian. I want to end on one wild card question um, that goes back to what we were first talking about, which was, you know, is the is the domestic stock market expensive? Perhaps it might be. Where should an investor be putting their money if the market is expensive in the U.S. and they don't want to hold cash? Where should they be putting it? Well, to use? I, I think you know where we put. Are some of our clients is um, all of our clients is uh, uh, companies which have 
strong dividends, strong balance sheets. You know, Berkshire Hathaway, which we've talked about, is a prime example of that. Um, you know, fortress-type companies. Uh, secondly, emerging markets, international, still represent good value relative to the U.S. They're always going to be cheaper than the U.S., uh, but they're but but the the discount can narrow, and I think that's what we expect to have happen. Got some great industrial production numbers out of Europe this this last week, which you know shows the recovering uh, growth there, and then the, the ongoing recovery, and then finally. You know, on the bond side, don't need to be in cash, but you know, treasuries, which we've always, uh, for the last couple of years now, have had clients in, you know, medium and, and longer duration treasuries, always a good place to go because when, it, when, if the market panics, I'm not suggesting it does, it will, but if it goes sideways or it has a clip, uh, a fall, you know, treasury is the first place where people go to. So it's the ultimate sort of uh, um, safety investment. Thank you, Christian. Welcome back. Thanks to you for listening. And also remember that we have our um, client monthly investment call next Tuesday. So tune in for that and um, look for the email for the time. And here's a disclosure. Please note this discussion of our investment investment strategy, including our research investment process, represents our investments and of investment strategy at the day of this commentary is subject to change without notice. We cannot assure the type of investment discussed in this commentary will outperform any other investment strategy in the future, nor can we guarantee that such investments will present the best or an attractive risk-adjusted investment in the future. This is for general informational purposes only. References to an individual security should not be construed or a recommendation to buy or sell that security. Security is mentioned in this commentary only several of the successful as well as unsuccessful investment by us do not represent all of the securities. We have purchased all the recommended. Although we deem reliable the source of statistical law and other information referred to in this commentary, we cannot guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any statements on numerical data, past performance, no indication of future results.